If you are new here, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at King's Chapel. It's my joy to be up here this morning, to be able to <clears throat> exposit the word and preach this morning. Continue to please keep Pastor Lou and his family in your prayers and <clears throat> my voice in your prayers. They're away on vacation. They're traveling back, uh, I think, tomorrow. So just continue to pray, that, pray for them. Pray this time was a good time of rest uh, for them and that they get back here safely next week. Um, Pastor Lou will be back here next Sunday, and we'll be heading back into the book of Isaiah, which we'll be wrapping up hopefully over the next month or so. Uh, but until then, we're in Colossians, and we're going to finish it up. The series is Colossians, the Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, looking at verses 7 through 18. Now before we get to those verses exactly, just let me give you a brief uh, overview of, of what's been covered in the letter up to this point. Because as we've gone through this letter, we've seen Paul cover the, the supremacy of Christ over all things. It said he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Paul has reminded the Colossian church of the reconciliation that they have with God, that they were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but Christ has reconciled them in his body of flesh by his death in order to present them as holy and blameless. Paul tells them of his, his laboring for the gospel, his sufferings, and his love for their church and for the other churches in the area. And Paul, in his letter, then directs them to this dangerous teaching that infiltrated the church this belief of, of Gnosticism, and he tells them, make sure that, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He wants them to look to Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In chapter 3, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. These are, these are all things he's telling this church. Their identity was to be in Christ and therefore as new creations, they were to have a new focus, a new conduct. How they lived, how they acted amongst people was a reflection of the gospel. How they spoke, what they did, their actions, their relationships. The husband and wife relationship should look different for those in Christ. Children and parents, even slaves and masters. All these dynamics were to shift for those who are a part of the redeemed kingdom. And last time we were in Colossians, a couple weeks ago, Paul, Paul was asking them to pray. He was asking them to be, to be watchful. Asking God to open doors for the opportunity for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is asking them to, to pray for him so he would be clear on how to speak, even in his imprisonment, that he could declare the gospel. And he leaves them with this or exhortation to, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that they too would know how to speak in order to answer each person and to preach the gospel. And now, the section we're at, Paul gives his final greetings. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I am in a, a book, a letter, and I see the heading at the end, and it says, final greetings, that's usually when the switch turns off, and we go, ah, that's done. What a, I don't know, Tychicus. What, a, what do I care what Tychicus has to say? These are just the, 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 the credits at the end of the book. He's just mentioning this. The main stuff is done. We're at the end. We can get up. We can leave the movie. But... But I, I really feel like final greetings are less like the credits of the book and they're more like the end credit scenes that we get now more and more at the end of movies. That, that post-credit scene you hang out for, it's, it's maybe not a major point of the plot of the movie, but there's something su- substantial to be gleaned from it. It's worth waiting for because it gives us further insight and, that, and that's what these greetings that we get to at the end of these books, it gives us a greater insight into Paul's world and to those around him. This final greeting gives us 10 more people who played a role in the early church. You know, we think of like the big names like Paul and Peter and John, those guys who wrote epistles, but 10 more people are listed in this book. And I know for some, maybe the apostle Paul is hard to relate to. His zeal was great. His experience with Jesus was unlike anything that we've experienced. His, his, his knowledge of the scripture, his understanding of the gospel is far deeper than sometimes we could ever relate. But if that's how we feel about, you might feel about the Apostle Paul, then I would say final greetings are even more for you. Because this final greeting, it gives us the glimpse at the ordinary people, like you and I, just serving the kingdom doing what we can faithfully for the cause of the gospel. These are the people that served alongside Paul. These are the people that actually ministered to the apostle Paul. And all that is just to say that when we get to the end of these letters, when we get to the greetings, it's not time to disconnect. One, because I have to preach it, and I want you to listen. Two, far more important than that, Because all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. These greetings are in this letter, in the word of God, for a reason, for us, for our edification. So as much of a names list as it seems, we're actually going to glean a lot from it. Um, Because I think in this list, um, we see a need for gospel community. Paul didn't live in isolation. Even in his imprisonment, he wasn't in isolation. He needed people. We need people. We need community. And so why do we need community? Well, I think from this small section of final greetings, we'll see seven seven things. You've seen four-point sermons. I'm giving us a a seven-point sermon this morning. So buckle up, baby. Seven things that gospel community provides. All of them 45 minutes apiece. I didn't tell Children's Church they're going to be back there a while. But here's seven things that gospel community provides. Gospel community provides um, trusted friendships. It create, gospel community creates trusted friendships. It restores broken relationships. Gospel community, community brings comfort, promotes a love for people, Gospel community can be messy. It requires partnership, and gospel community is personal. So that's 
all this we're going to see in final greetings, the things that we sometimes just dismiss. So, but before we look into each one of those, let's read this passage and see it in its entirety, and then we'll break it down section by section. So we are in four, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Paul says, Take a kiss. We'll tell you all about my activities. He is beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And with this letter, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And then say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So let's look at point one. That gospel community creates trusted friendships. So the first person that Paul mentions in this list is a man named Tychicus. A name now I wish I used for my newborn son. Tychicus Ragone. That has a good ring to it. Now Calvin works. Um, but we meet, we meet Tychicus not only in this book, but we actually met him in the, the book of Acts. He's one of Paul's ministry partners who traveled around with him at the end of his third missionary journey. We see his name pop up in other letters. Um, he was mentioned when we went through the book of Titus. He was one of the names Paul uh, mentions as well as in 2 Timothy and Ephesians. And now in this letter, Tychicus is the one who will be delivering this letter to the Colossians. Tychicus was essentially Paul's representative while he was stuck in prison. He's the one Paul wanted going out on his behalf to the people. Paul's relying on him to give a full update of everything that's been going on with his imprisonment in the ministry in Rome. And that includes details not in this letter. Things that he may only want said word of mouth and not written down. So that task requires trust on the part of Paul. You don't just entrust anyone with that task. Someone who's not great with details and is kind of forgetful could leave something vitally important out of the update that the church needs. In order for that to happen, the person traveling with the information needed to be intimately aware of all that was happening. He had to have all the details. He had to be trusted with it. And Tychicus was that person. 
Look how Paul refers to him. He says, he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Those are descriptors that we should all want when someone speaks our names. Tychicus, again, he's not in the Bible very much. He's mentioned a few times, but he is forever labeled in eternity in God's word as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And that's pretty awesome to have sealed in this book. And Paul attributes such kind words to him based on the time that they spent together in ministry, life on life, getting to know him, discipling him. They're growing in the gospel together for years at this point. And it's in that time Paul has gotten a glimpse at his character, more than a glimpse, a full-on look. And he says he's a beloved brother. He's dear to Paul. He's close with Paul. He's a faithful minister. He's stayed the course. He's kept the main thing the main thing. He hasn't veered to the left or the right. He's remained faithful to the mission of the gospel. Of all the attributes to have attached to our names, faithful should be one that we desire to have on the top of our list. Faithful. I think of church leadership. The church leadership doesn't need famous personalities or charismatic leaders, but it does need faithful ministers. Faithful people in the church, devoted. Leaders devoted to the people of God, steadfast in the gospel. Perfect leaders, never going to happen. But by God's grace, faithful. Paul also calls him a fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus is a partner in gospel ministry with Paul. He's been in the trenches with him. He's seen the good, the bad, the ugly. And Paul has been his mentor, but he also views him as a fellow worker with him. Not as someone beneath him, someone alongside him. Someone who has his back. He's a trusted friend. So for these reasons, Paul is sending Tychicus with this letter, with this update to the Colossians. Here's here's my friend, here's my beloved brother. I'm giving him to you for this update. So Paul, so the Colossians can know how Paul is doing, so their hearts can be encouraged. Tychicus has no doubt encouraged Paul's heart, and as such, Paul is confident he'll do the same for those in Colossae. And though Tychicus is not alone, Paul's sending him with a travel companion. Gospel community creates trusted friendships. Gospel community also restores broken relationships. And that's where we see this travel partner, Onesimus. So this travel companion that he has, if you remember, we've mentioned him a few times in the series. His name's uh, Onesimus, and his story's worth rehashing again because, frankly, it's, it's spectacular. Onesimus could technically be under the heading of trusted friends, again, by the way Paul speaks about him, our faithful and beloved brother. And these descriptors carry even more weight because Onesimus was a runaway slave. His master was a wealthy man from Colossae, actually hosted a church in his home. His name was Philemon. We have the last of Paul's epistles, the letter to Philemon. A wonderful book. If you have not read it, one, it takes five minutes. Two, maybe one we flip past, but it is just full of encouragement as, as Paul is urging Philemon to receive this one slave back as a brother in Christ. It's a beautiful book. If you haven't read it, read it. It's worth it. Um, 
But anyway, Onesimus is this runaway slave who's now being called a faithful brother. And at some point, when he ran, he went to Rome. Rome's a huge city. If you're going to want to run away as a slave and lay low, that was the place to go. Because he had stolen property or money or something. So he wanted to go there undetected. But God, being the providential and sovereign God he is, leads Philemon into contact with the Apostle Paul. And Paul, being Paul, ministered to this man who was running from his past, shared the gospel, and at some point during their time together, Onesimus actually comes to faith in Jesus. And Paul and Onesimus, they grow close. And Paul's like, I know Philemon. I know your master. I know who he is. Paul probably more than likely led Philemon to Christ. He says in that epistle, he owes him his very life. And as Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus in that book, he actually talks even more fondly than he does in this letter. And he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Child and father, like that's not just an acquaintance. That's a special relationship. There is this true bond between Paul and this once slave. But after coming to Christ, his identity is no longer rooted in his sin. Not a slave now, but a child. Or a, now he's a beloved brother. And Paul's desire is that Philemon would receive him back in the same way. No longer as a runaway slave. Paul says to Philemon in his letter to him, Perhaps, for this perhaps is why he parted for you from a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Paul was in community with Philemon. Paul came and formed community with Onesimus, and now he wants to send him back, and he's saying, receive him. This relationship can be mended, no longer as a bondservant, even more as a brother, as a beloved brother. Paul wants Philemon to see that the gospel mends what was broken. First, what was mended was Anisipus' soul, and secondly, can be their relationship. Paul actually says in his letter for Philemon, he would like Onesimus to stay with him. He loves having him around. He's a major help to him in Rome. But he's sending him back because he knows there needs to be this restoration that takes place between Philemon and Onesimus. He knows, and that's what's important. This is, this is a big move. A slave who stole from his master, who ran away, he could just be put to death. No one would bat an eye. That was just normal. But if Philemon receives this runaway slave back, not just as a slave, but as a brother, as an equal in Christ, that would speak multitudes. Paul knows Philemon's love for other believers, and he appeals to that gospel love, and he appeals that Philemon would show that same love to his one slave. And we don't know exactly what happened when he returns, but I'm inclined to believe that Philemon heeded Paul's words and made amends with his former servant. And what a picture of the gospel that would have been for the church at Colossae. Just as we were all running rebels from God, and we were been restored through the grace of Jesus Christ, Paul's desire is Philemon, for Philemon to show that grace to Onesimus. And that those looking in would see that even the most egregious sins can be forgiven because Christ forgave us. 
I think of the petty things we hold against others. I mean, think about the things we hold against people. It's, a, it's probably not even close to this scale. We hold it against them, and we, we let just anger and whatever build up. Do they even compare to this? If the gospel can compel Philemon to forgive Onesimus, can it compel us to grant others grace? I'll be the first to admit to my own shame that grace is not always my first response. But when I don't respond in grace, when I don't seek restoration between someone who either I wronged or I've felt wronged by, I'm out of step with the gospel. I'm not living in community the way that I should. If we're walking together in gospel community, there needs to be the seeking of restoration between broken relationships because Jesus was broken to restore us. Gospel community restores broken relationships. And there's another example of this within the final greetings. Paul mentions in in verse 10b, he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In the book of Acts, Paul had an issue with Mark. On his first missionary journey, Mark actually deserted him. He went back to Jerusalem. And Paul, and we, we don't know exactly why, but Paul was left feeling absolutely betrayed. Later on, when Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along on another journey, Paul was like, no way. I'm not having that guy with me. He runs away. He's a deserter. Paul refused. He wanted nothing to do with him. And they, Paul and Barnabas actually go their separate ways. Paul with Silas and then Barnabas with Mark. But we see here, their relationship has been restored. Mark, or Paul even tells them that if Mark comes to them, to the Colossians, receive him. And it's possible that they knew of the rift between the two of them. Because he says, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Like, he's no longer on my, on my blacklist. We're all good. We've made restoration. Receive him. Paul didn't want that past conflict to affect things any longer. Paul's practicing what he preaches. In this letter, he tells them, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We see that between Paul and Mark. We don't know all the intimate details of it. But Mark is with him. He sends his greetings. There's that restoration. Paul understood the gospel. He understands that believers aren't meant to stay opposed to each other, but should be united in Christ. Gospel community restores broken relationships. Gospel community also brings comfort. After Tychicus and Onesimus, Paul mentions three people, one of whom we've already heard. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, Aristarchus, like Tychicus, was a traveling companion of Paul on his third missionary journey. And Paul refers to him here as a fellow prisoner. 
There's actually some debate among commentators and, and scholars as to whether he was a, a literal prisoner of Paul, or if Paul's just speaking figuratively as he does, like when he refers to people as fellow soldiers, fellow workers. Is he actually a true fellow prisoner? Or is he just associating with Paul's imprisonment? I mean, it was a tough time to be a Christian back then. He very well could have been an actual prisoner. It wouldn't be a far leap. There's also the possibility that he was there with Paul in his imprisonment, like with him imprisoned by his own choice to be with Paul. Whatever the case is, he's with Paul, he's in Rome, and he's a comfort to him, along with Mark and Jesus called Justice. And what's significant about who these men are is that they're the only men of the circumcision among his fellow workers for the kingdom of God, Paul says. Meaning they're the only ones of Jewish descent like Paul. He's had many dealings with, with, with ethnic Jews throughout his ministry. There's been a lot of tension between him and the Jewish believers, those, those Judaizers who didn't fully grasp the gospel. We saw in Galatians, Paul had a hard time with the circumcision party, as he calls it, because they're adding this tradition onto the gospel. So there's been this tension between Paul and those in the Jewish faith who became believers, but who were mixing the two together. But here, he has three people who he says who are, who are a part of the kingdom, who are workers for the kingdom, and they're a comfort to him. There's this, this comfort in this shared experience that they have. Though Paul ministered to Gentiles, he wasn't a Gentile. And he, he's, there's a comfort in knowing they've stayed the course when so many haven't. That they've brought Paul comfort through ministering to him in the gospel. House arrest or not, I can only imagine how, how, how taxing it was on Paul mentally and spiritually to be in isolation. He needed these brothers. And they have this similar past together. Many of us probably don't understand the isolation that Paul must have felt in his final years. And yet there's many of us who willingly choose isolation over community. Paul was yearning for his brothers. And sometimes we yearn to just be left alone. We choose to tackle challenges in life by ourselves because it's just ingrained in us. We got to be tough. We got to deal with it ourselves. I don't need anyone. I can do this myself. We've been taught that true, true strength is found in independence. And some of that's true. We don't want to be always codependent on everyone. But we can't sacrifice community for our own isolation. We, we can't willingly keep others at an arm length. When we're, when we're struggling, we, we can't resort to drawing inward and secluding ourselves. Paul's demonstrating that the opposite of that is necessary. He needed these fellow workers. He needed their presence. He needed to hear the gospel preached to him, even though he was preaching it to other people. He needed their comfort in the midst of his agony. We need each other. One of my favorite parts of, of community group is the time we spend sharing our prayer requests with each other. 
Because it's in that time that we, we share our troubles, our struggles, our joys, what's going on in life, what's happening in families. And when we do that, we're, we're opening our lives up to allow others to speak into them. And, and we can truly minister and comfort one another. Some of that may have seemed overwhelming when kept inside may not seem so bad when shared with others and, and people can relate or just offer wisdom or just pray for you to know that someone cares. Find comfort bearing one another's burdens. That's why we're told to bear one another's burdens. Paul felt deserted by so many, but not these brothers. We might be able to overcome many things through our own efforts, but how much better is it to have someone just walk through it with you? Is it your tendency to isolate? Let me challenge you. Break out of that habit. Intentionally find people to walk with. That's why literally every Sunday in announcements, second announcement, community groups, we're not just trying to push an activity. We want you to feel the comfort of gospel community. We need it. We need it. We weren't designed to walk alone. God designed us to be in community with one another. It's not just a good idea. It's a need. Gospel community brings comfort. Gospel community promotes a love for people. Now we're going to meet Epaphras. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you? A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. We've seen some people with various giftings in this small passage. Tychicus is Paul's ambassador of sorts, a reliable point man to be his messenger to the churches. Anismus is a faithful and reliable helper. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, they're the encouragers, the comforters. And we have Epaphras, a devoted prayer warrior. I really love the way Paul talks about Epaphras. He doesn't just say, Epaphras is praying for you. That would have been nice. But he says he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That's not something we hear too often, but it paints this perfect picture. and makes you really get the sense that the true love and care and devotion that Epaphras had for the Colossian church. This word struggling could also be translated laboring. It's a word, the Greek word would have been used to allude to someone entering into like a contest or a competition to actually to, to exert themselves, this struggle, this fight. And when I hear this language, it's, it's like these prayers are, are, are leaving him exhausted he's praying so hard for these people. He'd, he'd end up looking like Kramer at the end of the AIDS walk. <laughs> Our beloved brother Epaphras. Exhaustion. He's struggling for them on their behalf. Okay, maybe not exactly like that. Not even remotely like that. But I checked my box off for Seinfeld reference. But there's an exertion of spiritual energy being poured out in prayer by Epaphras for the church. And what is he praying? 
says that he's praying that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras' prayers are for the exact struggle of the church. If you remember, there's these false teachers. They're preaching this heresy of Gnosticism, causing confusion, causing division within the church. There's this belief that the physical was bad and, and only the spiritual was good and, and people were being pushed towards this way of asceticism and as a means of gaining favor, reject all material things. Epaphras, Epaphras was praying against that. He's praying that they would take the words of this letter and impress them into their souls, that they would stand firm, assured in all the will of God. That they would stand firm on the truth that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He's praying that they would stand firm on the truth that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether in thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's praying that they would stand firm on the truth that if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seating at the right hand of, the, of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's struggling on their behalf that they would stand firm in all the will of God. The church is going to hear the words of Paul as Tychicus reads this letter. And when they get to the end, they are going to know that there is someone named Epaphras who is already praying for them struggling for them because he loves the church. He loves people. And not just the Colossian church, the whole region. Paul says that Epaphras has worked hard on their behalf and those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Those are, they're all three are close to each other. They're all located in, around the Lycus River region. Epaphras isn't solely focused on one little slice. He has a love for the church as a whole. His church, the Colossians, and the surrounding churches. That's why gospel community promotes a love for people, promotes a love for the church. Not just one local church, but for the church as a whole. A love for the kingdom. When we isolate, we lose that because we're cutting ourselves off. We're getting tunnel vision. All we can see is what is just about us. But we, when we intentionally pour ourselves in the gospel community, we develop a true love and a true care for people. And we can see, even though this is one sub-point, we see this in the friends that Paul has surrounded himself in. They have a love for people. He has a love for them. But when we get involved with people, sadly, the reality is also that gospel community can be messy. It can be. I wish I had like seven points of just pure positivity for you this morning. Like decay love of sermons, positive encouraging. But there's a reality. Now in verse 14 it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now from that little sentence, you're probably thinking, how does this get messy? Literally they're saying hi. That doesn't seem messy at all. But bear with me and you'll see. But first let's look at who these guys are. Now, Luke is the Luke you're probably thinking of. He's the author of the gospel according to, you guessed it, Luke. And he's also the author of Acts. And we know from what's written in the book of Acts, 
and Paul's mentioning of Luke in other epistles that Luke has spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. He was a close companion. It's pretty cool for Paul because it's like he has his own personal doctor at all times. Luke is with him. Now, Demas, we don't know that much about. He's mentioned here. He's mentioned again in the letter to Philemon, probably written around the same time. He's someone who served alongside Paul, possibly as an assistant of sorts. And it's interesting that Luke and Demas are linked together here. Because when Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, which happens later, that's when things get messy. Look what he tells them, tells Timothy. Verses 9 and 11. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. There's a reality check here. Though we need gospel community, it's not always perfect because people are involved. Imperfect people makes for imperfect community. It doesn't always have the desire and the conclusion we, the conclusion we desire. Sometimes there's people we think are our closest friends, and then for one reason or another, they decide otherwise, and they're gone. And they just fall off the map. I'm sure there's plenty of people in this room who have felt the hurt of a deserted friend. We've seen it here, brothers and sisters. We thought we were in the church, just turn away. When that happens, it doesn't mean we should just say, forget community. This is, this is terrible. I'm done with this. That's when we actually lean into it more. When we lean into the trusted friends that we have. When we receive the comfort of those around us. Paul feels totally deserted. And he's saying, Timothy, please come. Luke's the only one I got. I need, I need more people. Because I'm feeling really deserted. He leans into community. We need to, when people desert us and we, we feel that abandonment in community, we need to relish the prayers of those struggling on our behalf as we continue to press on. And the hope would be that one day that severed relationship could be mended. Like we see with Mark. We see by, between Philemon and Onesimus. Just because gospel community can be messy does not make it any less necessary. Right? Just because food spoils doesn't mean we stop eating, right? I know I don't. <laughs> that movement is now forever on a video <laughs> and ingrained in your minds. But we can't just throw something out because occasionally it blows up in our face. We need gospel community, even if it gets messy. So let's move on to our, our next point. Gospel community requires partnership. See, we're getting through these points. Point number six. Two more to go. Verse 15. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So here we pivot from people's greetings to Colossae to Paul sending his personal greetings. 
But his greeting is not for the church in Colossae. He already gave those at the beginning. He already said hi. He wants the Colossians to pass his greetings on to the brothers at Laodicea, the neighboring church, and to Nympha and the church in her house, which would have been in Laodicea. House churches were the churches of the time. They didn't have buildings or property or anything like we see today. The saints gathered in people's homes. Nympha was most likely a wealthy widow believer who opened her home to the gathering of believers. And it's this next verse where we really see this partnership aspect and why I labeled this point requires partnership. Because he says, When this letter has been read among you, Colossians, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. The letters that Paul penned were not meant to just be selfishly clung to, but shared in a partnership with the surrounding believers. Make sure they can read this letter and make sure you read what I said to them. Because you're in this fight of faith together. You're partners in ministry. You're not opposed to each other in ministry. Church, I feel like, has become such a competitive space, which is so weird if we're all on the same mission. We're meant to be partners in ministry. Obviously, if someone's preaching heresy, not partners in ministry with them. But for those united in the gospel, we're we're gonna have a greater impact on this world together than we're going to on our own, trying to do our own thing. That's why I love that we're involved with the Liberty Church Network, LCN, gathering together with other pastors for the mission of making disciples together, bouncing ideas off of one another, talking about our wins, talking about our struggles, so that we can better minister to the world around us. Paul's letter to the Colossians was going to minister to the Laodiceans, and the letter that he gave to Laodicea, we don't have, was going to minister to the Colossians. He wanted them to have this mutual reading of it. Just like this letter, not to us, ministers and encourages us thousands of years later. Now we know sadly from the book of Revelation that the church of Laodicea struggled with this lukewarm faith in Christ later on. But that aside, at this time, Paul was under the assumption that believers needed to be united partners in the ministry of the gospel. In Paul's last message, the last thing he says before he actually ends the letter and signs it was for Archippus. He's also referred to in the letter of Philemon as a fellow soldier. He may, he may be even be pastoring the church that's in Philemon's house, which is, I, I, for me, it's just cool to see all these little pieces put together. It paints a, a greater picture in my mind of what was going on back then. Some believe that uh, he might even be the son of Philemon and Aphia because he's mentioned alongside them in the book of Philemon. Whatever his exact role is, Paul is coming alongside him with the best way that he can with, this, with these words. See that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. If there's a brief statement that could spur anyone on in ministry in just one sentence, this is the sentence. See that you fulfill the ministry you received in the Lord. There's actually, there's a weight to that. Fulfill the ministry you've received in the Lord. That's more than just do your job well. No, you've received this from the Lord. Fulfill it. Carry it out. Stay focused. Don't waver. 
Don't get distracted. Don't settle in defeat. Fulfill what you have received. What does this mean, though? With this letter in mind, I believe it means doing what Paul says earlier in the letter in chapter 3. Fulfill the ministry. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Fulfill the ministry you've received. Do that. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't let false teaching confuse you and tear you away from the mission of God. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. And do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfill the ministry you've received in the Lord. Paul, in partnership, wants Archippus to succeed. Because that's what partners do. That's what having kingdom-mindedness is all about. Gospel community requires partnership. And lastly, gospel community is personal. Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, the majority of this letter is not handwritten by Paul at all. He has Timothy acting as a secretary, writing as Paul dictates. But what Paul wants the Colossians to know is that what they're hearing is from him. He wants them to know that he personally cares for them, for their ministry. And he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. He takes this time to where they get this letter and all the writing looks like one way and at the end there's this distinct mark and it's Paul's own hand saying, this was me. I said this. I personally care for you. I'm writing this with my own hand. We live in an age where being personal is getting completely lost and I'm guilty as charged. Productivity and efficiency have, have taken spotlight to being personable. They've sidelined personability. Everything's automated. I think it's, it's funny. I get these occasional flyers in the mail from uh, Anderson Windows, Renewal by Anderson, and they take all this time to send you a letter that's supposed to look handwritten and personal, and you know it's not handwritten, and it's not personal at all. It's just an advertisement. But they're, they're, they're taking all this. They could just be personable. But the, we live in a society that's like, what's fastest? What's easiest? What's best? What avoids confrontation at all costs? Don't be personal. And we see it in our relationships, behind the screens. But when we take the time to make things personal it actually cultivates better and deeper community with one another without true personal relationships we're not as much a community as we're just a gathering of people at the same place at the same time it's like when you go to a packed movie yeah there's a lot of people here but we don't know each other we're not connected we're just together gospel community is personal the gospel is personal when we repent of our sin and put our trust in the finished work of Jesus, we are personally given his righteousness. That's personal. God has personally delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We personally have the redemption and forgiveness of sins and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today believing God is just some entity in the sky that does not care about you, 
you are wrong. He cares so much that he personally sent his own son to die for you and me. And Jesus loves you so much that he willingly gave his life on the cross for you and me. Do you believe that? The gospel is personal. And for those of us who believe the gospel, our relationships also need to be personal, both inside and outside the church. When we get to know people personally, we have a greater opportunity to share Christ with them. When I get the letters in my mailbox from, from the Jehovah's Witness in Altamont just sending me form letters, it's going in the garbage because it's not truth. But it's also, I'm not reading that. What? You just sent me the same thing you've sent every mailbox in my neighborhood. It's not personal. But when we actually build personal relationships with people, it opens up the doors for the conversation to be had, for the Holy Spirit to be at work in the hearts of people to see the beauty of Christ. To, re- to give people the opportunity to repent and believe and join the fellow redeemed church of Christ. Are we personally involved with people? Let's wrap this up. So with Paul's own hand, he's asking them to remember his change. His chains, not change. His chains. He personally loves them. He wants them to remember his circumstances. Don't forget about me, Colossians, what he's saying. Pray for me. Remember me. And finally, he ends this letter with how he started. Grace. He says, grace be with you. He began with grace to you, and he finishes with grace be with you. Paul knew the need for grace. It's by God's grace and his work alone that will enable believers to live out the gospel in a manner that Paul has called them to in this letter. It's only going to be by grace. The only way that we thrive together in gospel community together will be by God's grace. There's a need for gospel community, and within that, there's a need for grace. If we're going to build trusted friendships, it's going to have to be grace. If broken relationships are going to be restored, there needs to be grace. If we're going to provide comfort and receive comfort from others, there's a need for grace. If we're going to love people well, there needs to be grace. If things get messy, there really needs to be grace. If we're going to be partners together for the sake of Christ, there needs to be grace. And if we're going to truly get personal and not just keep others at an arm length, there needs to be grace. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Ben can come on up. Father, we just, we thank you. We thank you for this glimpse that you've given us in this final greeting that we can see how you work. We can see the giftings of your people in your church. Now we're all together in this, in community, striving in one direction, the mission of God and the cause of the gospel. May these words and these greetings, may they minister to our hearts this morning. May we recall these things in our day-to-day pieces of life or, or times in life. May it just serve as an encouragement. May it spur us on into community. Where we've been keeping people out, Lord, I pray that you would give us the desire to bring them in. Where relationships have been broken, 
I pray that you are softening hearts this morning and that they see the need for reconciliation in the gospel. Humble us. Help us to put ourselves aside and see what you require of us that we may seek to be united in Christ. Father, give us a love for people in this room and outside of these walls. Help us to be a church that truly has a desire to stay the course, to be faithful missionaries, faithful ministers of the gospel to those around us and in our spheres of life and influence. May Christ be exalted in our lives as the truly supreme one, sufficient in all things. We thank you for the word that you've given us in this letter from Paul to a church in Colossae. We thank you that it has been an encouragement to us here today, thousands of years later. We ask that it would continue to be on our hearts and minds even as we go. And now as we respond, Lord, help us to just pour all that we've received back to you in praise and worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.